When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Irish Examiner podcast series on the Civil War. The year 2022, of course, is the centenary of the Irish Civil War, which brought us to an end the turbulent near decade of conflict that started with Easter 1916 and culminated with the birth of the state and the dispute over the Anglo-Irish Treaty signed in December 1921. In this series, we're examining various aspects of the war characterised as pitting brother against brother and which unfortunately at times descended into, and there's no other word for it, a form of depravity with atrocities that killed many and left a bitter legacy. Today we're concentrating on the politics of the time, the divided doll, the attempts to avoid a split and what emerged politically when the guns finally fell silent in the first half of 1923. Joining me to discuss the politics is a man who would be known to most of you as current affairs presenter and journalist David McCullough, currently anchoring the RT61 Television News. David is also a historian and among the books he's written are two about Eamon de Valera and the biography of John A. Costello. De Valera, of course, whose role in the Civil War was a major issue for the rest of his life and had a big impact on his legacy, which we'll talk about. David's current book is The Great Irish Politics Book, which is aimed at informing a young generation of 8 to 12-year-olds all about politics. David, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mick. David, now, the split. uh, The treaty is signed December 21. As I said, there is serious disagreement back in Dublin. There's a debate in January 1922, and then the anti-treatyites, led by de Valera, walk out. A split seems inevitable. There was, I think, though, serious efforts to patch things up and try to avoid what everybody feared was going to be a violent conflict. Yeah, I mean, the important thing to remember about the walkout is that it didn't last very long. I mean, people will be familiar with this image, uh, particularly it's used to great effect in um, in Neil Jordan's movie, Michael Collins, and they all walk out and there's shouting and uh, haranguing of one side and the other. And that all happened. That's all absolutely accurate. But what people probably don't realise is that after lunch... De Valera and the Republicans came back into the chamber and they carried on uh, and they carried on with with, uh, you know, a relatively civilised discussion. What had prompted the walkout wasn't the vote on the treaty. That had happened a couple of days before. And once the treaty was defeated, De Valera said, well, I'll have to stand down as president of the Republic. And Michael Collins said, no, no, don't do that yet. We, we don't want to lose your services to the nation. So both Collins and Arthur Griffith try and persuade De Valera not to resign. But de Valera says, no, um, we, we have to carry on in, in a logical and a constitutional way. I've lost the majority. I have to resign. But he then put his name forward uh, for re-election. And he said if he, if he was re-elected, that he would appoint a cabinet which was completely anti-treaty. So this would have, uh, this, this in effect, if he'd won that election, it, it was in effect a second vote on the treaty a couple of days after the first. So the first vote on the treaty, the treaty uh, was supported by a margin of six, of seven votes, 64 to 57. This second vote on de Valera's uh, renomination as president was much, much closer. There were only two votes in it. De Valera himself abstained in a kind of a high-minded 
uh, gesture saying that he didn't really want power and he, uh, that abstention could have been very costly for him. Two others uh, who had voted for the treaty didn't take part in this vote, they abstained, and two more changed sides. So they voted in favour of, of the treaty, but then voted in favour of de Valera. So anyway, long story short, he was only defeated by two votes. And at that point, the following day, uh, Arthur Griffith's name was being put forward and de Valera said, asked a couple of questions. What position would he hold? Would he be president of the Republic as de Valera had been? Would he defend the Republic and all the rest? And he got answers which seemed to satisfy him. And he said, well, I can sit here in this chamber while this vote has been taken because it's all perfectly proper. And then Mary McSweeney, a formidable uh, deputy from Cork, uh, sister, of course, of Terence McSweeney, who had died on hunger strike in uh, 1920, got up and said, we will not have any cooperation with the so-called free state. We will not support this government, uh, which is trying to disestablish the Republic. And that drove de Valera to take a much harder line. So when the vote was called, he stood up and led his supporters out of the chamber. And as I said, then after lunch, they came back. They had a perfectly civil uh, discussion about what would happen next. Arthur Griffith looked for uh, an adjournment of the doll for a month uh, so the provisional government could uh, could start its business. And de Valera agreed to that. And it looked at that stage as if they would find um, some way of proceeding without a resort to violence. And de Valera had spoken uh, before the uh, vote in the Dáil on the treaty about finding a definite constitutional way to resolve our differences. So he was talking about politics as the way uh, forward. And uh, it looked, at least at that stage, as if the politicians would find a way through. The problem was, of course, it wasn't just up to the politicians. There were other actors on the stage, principally the IRA. Yes, and just in terms of the makeup of the doll, David, I saw somewhere that um, an awful lot of the TDs, or a certain number of them, Collins had specifically been involved in their recruitment and he recruited a lot of them on the basis of that back in 1918-19, he would have viewed them as being... Uh, very much in the pro-military side in terms of his vision of having to go to war with the British. And then he finds himself, having signed the treaty, that perhaps these lads are still a bit militant. I mean, is there something to that? There's a, there is something to it. I, I think it's probably overstressed. I mean, remember when the candidates who have been selected, they have been selected by Collins and by Harry Boland. Uh, the two of them were very much a double act at this stage, uh, particularly within Sinn Féin. So yes, in, for, for the 1918 election, they did look for people who were, who were militant, who were advanced nationalists, as the term uh, is sometimes used, who were committed to the declaration of a republic. And that then came to pass in January. January 1919. And you're right that many of the many of the TDs had a military background. They were involved in the IRA, which, which was natural enough because they had come to prominence within the movement because uh, of, the, of their prominence in, in the IRA or the, or the volunteers as, as they were known before that. The other thing to bear in mind, though, is that a lot of them were involved in the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, the secretive uh, underground organisation uh, that Collins was in more or less in control of. And that IRB connection was very important for a lot of of men who decided to support the treaty despite their republican backgrounds that you know and and not just in the IRB some of the military people who weren't involved in the IRB took the same line it was it was what's good enough for Mick is good enough for me so Yes, there were lots of people in the Dáil who were far more uh, advanced in their republicanism than the gen generality of the population, but there were also people who were swayed by other factors. And so you have the IRB link, 
you also have the military link, and, and there were quite a few uh, of uh, IRA officers from inside and outside the Dáil from parts of the country that um, the IRA was struggling in, that the IRA had never really got going. And they realised that if war was resumed, that they'd be in a, a very difficult situation. Different in Cork, um, different in Tipperary, uh, different perhaps in Kerry, places where there had been a very strong uh, IRA during the War of Independence, even stronger thanks to the uh, um, increase in recruitment during the truce. And they saw things differently from a military point of view. They felt that they had the beating of, of the British, um, that they had, had enough men and that they had enough material. So people were making their choices on all sorts of of different um, criteria. You know, was the free state, the treaty, was it a step on the road, as as Collins argued, or was it the final destination, as as Brew, Cahill Brew and Eamon de Valera and others argued? They were also deciding it on the basis of, of the military situation and how it was likely to, to play out. So there was lots of different factors. You can't look at the breakdown in the vote on the treaty and ascribe it to just one thing. There was a whole multitude of factors. Right, and thereafter then, I mean, at some stage after that, there was plans that there was going to be an election which would was effectively going to be seen as a plebiscite on the treaty. And in that context, and I suppose in the general political time, you had various meetings around the country. And at one of these, there's that occasion when... Dev was quoted, and I'm not sure was he quoted exactly correctly, but making a reference to some extent that um, if necessary, they would wade through Irish blood in order to, I don't know, was it get the Republic or whatever? Yeah, well, I mean, what De Valera was saying was if you accept the treaty, that's the end of it. And that if the volunteers of the future wanted to complete the work of the volunteers of the present day, so if you wanted to get full independence from Britain, you'd have to use violence. But instead of fighting the British army, you would be fighting the army of, of the free state. So you'd have to wade through Irish blood. Um, that was one of a series of speeches he made uh, at around that time, all more or less on the same line, saying if you accept the treaty, you will get a civil war, either now or at some stage in the future. Now, Lots of people took that as a threat. Michael Collins certainly took it uh, as a threat. He, he urged De Valera to stop uh, what he called his incitements uh, to, to, to violence. De Valera always claimed that it wasn't a threat, it was a warning. He was warning of what would happen. Uh, and uh, Pater O'Donnell, the, the veteran uh, socialist Republican, once said, you might as well blame a rainy day on the weather forecaster as blame De Valera for the Civil War, mm. uh, which is a nice line, yeah. but, uh, you know... A weather forecast isn't going to change the climate, but a political speech certainly can change the political climate. And uh, certainly what De Valera, De Valera's words did have an impact and a very dangerous impact at, at, at that time. You mentioned the election and, and the terms of the treaty, the British expected an election very quickly um, after the treaty was ratified uh, to create the Irish Free State government. And it was delayed, and it was delayed because of the, the treaty split. And De Valera was desperate to try and delay an election as long as possible because he was well aware that the majority of the people would vote in favour of the treaty if they were given a, a choice. Now, he said that that was because of British pressure, and he certainly had a point in that. So he, he was trying to uh, avoid an election. Collins and Griffith were desperate to have an election as early as possible for exactly the same reasons. They knew that public opinion would support them, not necessarily because they loved the treaty, but because they were tired of war in the main. And a lot of people 
you know, just want a quiet life. If, if you give them the choice, do you want to continue a, a, a struggle with the British Empire, which may or may not lead to something slightly better than what's on offer? Or do you want to take what you've got? A lot of people would, would say, let's take what we got, stop the, stop the fighting, stop the, uh, the turmoil and just get on with our lives. And that's, uh, you know, a, a reasonable enough uh, position for people to take. So there was the, this, this conflict about whether or not an election would take place. And Collins and Griffith were deeply concerned that if there was an election, if the IRA were still uh, unreconciled to it, that they would disrupt it. There's already been uh, issue, uh, cases of election registers being stolen and so on. And there was no way that you could run an election if the anti-treaty IRA was determined that you wouldn't be able to. So they needed some kind of an agreement. And what they came up with eventually was the, what's known as the collins Devil era pact, which was agreed in May uh, in advance of the election in June. And that said that pro and anti-treaty Sinn Féin would put forward a panel of candidates in each constituency. So uh, more or less three to two in favour of the pro-treaty side. And that once the election was over that they would form a coalition government with a sort of pro rata distribution of seats. So de Valera thought this was great, this is a victory. Uh, Griffith thought it was a disaster. But Collins had secured something very important uh, in, in the pact, not just the fact that the election could go ahead in, in relative peace, but anybody who wanted to would be allowed to stand as a candidate. So you have a panel election, but other candidates can take part. So in 20 of the 28 constituencies, voters had a choice. They didn't just have pro or anti-treaty Sinn Féin. They could vote for farmers. They could vote for Labour. They could vote for independents, all of whom, broadly speaking, were in favour of the treaty. So that completely upended uh, the strategy of having a, a, a packed election, a fixed election, if you like. And um, the result was, was pretty emphatic. As de Valera said in, in the immediate wake of the election, we are hopelessly beaten. And if it weren't for the pact, it would have been much worse. Yeah, it's interesting that he, he knew all along that in, in terms of uh, popular opinion, in terms of any electorate, they weren't going to win. One aspect to that period, again, in the run up to actually um, conflict breaking out with the shelling of the four courts, David, is the, the role of the British. And I'm just referencing here the recent... Um, Civil War Conference in UCC, the Taoiseach Michal Martin, like yourself, a historian, <laughs> spoke there. And I think this isn't the first time he made a reference to this. But he suggested about, at this period, that the British were very inflexible. And I just quote him here, constant interference and inflexibility from London was central to the fact that nothing came of these efforts. Those were the efforts, as you said, for de Valera and Collins to ensure there wasn't a split. He said... The implied and open threats made to the provisional government directly escalated division and reinforced the views of those who questioned the good faith of London. Now, just a contraview and just what your opinion on it might be. Lloyd George and his colleagues had, in the context of the time, in the context of British politics and the empire, gone pretty far with the Anglo-Irish Treaty and it was thus taught by a lot of people perhaps to the right within British politics and they were under some flack back home for even signing the treaty. So what would it be too much to expect that they would have, for instance, agreed to what in some ways were concessions to the treaty signed in December when Collins and Griffith were, were over negotiating with them or explaining to them what was uh, what was going on, that it was watering down the Anglo-Irish Treaty to some extent. Is it expecting too much to say they could have done more to ensure there wasn't a split? 
I think it probably is. I think both the Taoiseach and yourself are right in your analysis and, and, and one leads to another. Lloyd George had gone out on a limb. He had given um, uh, Collins and Griffith more than most people in his government would have liked uh, in in terms of the treaty. And remember, Lloyd George is head of a coalition. He's the liberal head of a of a government dominated by conservatives who don't really like him. And there's increasing unrest on the Tory backbenches about his uh, about his leadership. The 1922 committee, of, of which we hear a lot when there's a leadership heave in Britain, is called that for a reason. It was set up in 1922 to get rid of Lloyd George. So he is under pressure. There is a limit to how far he can go. And that leads to the British, to London, putting intense pressure on Griffith and particularly on Collins when it comes to the Constitution. And what Collins wanted to do with the Constitution of the, of the Irish Free State was make it Republican enough to kind of blunt the edge of opposition from the anti-treaty side. And the British were determined not to let him get away with it. And their determination was increased by the fact that he'd agreed a pact for the election. And Churchill, who was uh, colonial secretary at the time, much to the misfortune of Ireland, um, took the view that there wasn't really an election. And if there had been a real election, a real contest, uh, they would, the British would have been forced to maybe give a few more concessions to Collins to try and strengthen his hand. But seeing as there wasn't really an election, uh, he felt that there was no particular need to do so. Now, the Constitution, in fairness, in Article 2, the Constitution says sovereignty derives from uh, the Irish people. And then it goes on in a later uh, article, Article 51, I think it was, to say that um, executive power is hereby given to the king. So if you were a sophisticated politician, like de Valera was, you could have made great hay with that. You could have made an argument that we have sovereignty, we have won sovereignty, we are choosing to lend it to uh, the British king for the purposes um, of this argument. And, and you possibly could have made an argument like that, but it, it didn't really arise. It, it was viewed, the, the constitution was viewed as far too uh, monarchical uh, to satisfy anybody on the, on the anti-treaty side. And it wasn't published anyway until the day of the election itself. So the British were putting an awful lot of pressure on Collins. And you can tell, you can tell from his letters home from London how much pressure he feels. He feels that he's in this position because the anti-treatyites are, are uh, running amok in the Irish countryside, robbing banks and all the rest of it. And therefore, he doesn't have a leg to stand on when he starts arguing with the British. But the British have play a very important role in this, and you quoted the Taoiseach, and he's absolutely right, that they do share some of the blame for the outbreak of the Civil War, a very large share. I mean, we always concentrate on what Collins did and what de Valera did. The British played a key role here, and they're putting pressure on Collins all the time to take action against um, the Four Courts uh, garrison, the anti-treaty headquarters in the Four Courts. Ironically, they uh, get particularly irate when Sir Henry Wilson, the former chief of the Imperial General Staff at, at that time, uh, an Ulster Unionist MP, uh, who was also an advisor to Sir James, a uh, security advisor to Sir James Craig's government, he's shot on the steps of his house in London, uh, shot dead by two IRA men who are subsequently caught and executed. And the British immediately blame the Four Courts garrison where Rory O'Connor and the rest of the IRA executive are have, have installed themselves in the heart of Dublin. And they demand action and they write to Collins saying, you must take action. This is a, a step too far. If you don't take action, we will. And remember, there are still British troops in Ireland. Plenty of them. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, Neville McCready, the commander-in-chief during the War of Independence, he's still there. He has thousands and thousands of troops. And he is ordered, after uh, Wilson's assassination, he is ordered to attack the four courts himself. Now, McCready, you could say many things about McCready, but he wasn't an idiot. Um, and he realised that the result of that would be to immediately reunite the pro and anti-treaty factions of the IRA, restart the War of Independence, and the whole thing starts again. So he um, he doesn't refuse to attack the four courts, but he temporises, he plays for time, he sends one of his uh, officers over to London to argue against, and eventually the British cabinet uh, agrees that it would be pretty stupid for them to do it when they could get the provisional government to do it. So they put pressure and pressure and pressure on Collins. And Collins at the time is, is uh, in the south of the country, uh, tying up some loose ends from the election. And uh, the, the Irish send a pretty dusty reply back to London. They say, well, what's your proof that, um, that these two men were under orders from the Four Courts Executive? The irony, of course, is that most people think, with good reason, no hard proof, but good reason, that the assassination was ordered by... Michael Collins. Yeah. So the irony of it is that Collins is being ordered to take action against the Four Courts garrison because of something he did. And then the final straw that breaks the camel's back. Some anti-treatyites raid a car showroom on Baggett Street. Um, cars have been brought down there from Belfast. There's a boycott of, of goods from Belfast. So they think they're entirely within their rights to commandeer these cars. And while they're at it, Along comes uh, a couple of lorry loads of Free State troops who arrest them, much to the surprise of the, uh, of the uh, anti-treaty side. So they're carted off to Beggar's Bush barracks. That evening, Ginger O'Connell, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff of the National Army, is sauntering home from the pub, uh, alone, unarmed, and he gets lifted by the anti-treaty forces who take him off to the forecourts. So... The Free State government, or the provisional government, uh, as it still is at this stage, is faced with a simply intolerable situation. They're under pressure from the British anyway to take action. Now that the, the irregulars, as they would call them, have arrested their own deputy chief of staff. So that gives them both a spur to take action and also a good excuse to take action. Because you can say to your Free State soldiers, you can say, look, look what they've done. They've arrested poor old Ginger. We can't have that. Now, whether the National Army would have been cohesive enough to take action because of the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson or not is, is, is an open question, but they could certainly do it because of this uh, insult to the uh, honour of the National Army. Yeah, and it's interesting, it's Henry Wilson, that, that is the irony that uh, for a long time, I think a lot of people said that it was Collins may have ordered. Now, Ronan McGreevy, Irish Times journalist, just written a book. A very good Did book. an interview with him about it, yeah, and... 
I'm not I'm not as sure that it was Collins, but well, certainly that he, was the he, thinking I mean, for goes, a long he, time. He goes through all the, it's a very good book. He goes through all the um the potential uh potentials for it. One, that the two lads acted on their own accord and he dismisses that. Two, that the four courts garrison did argue uh, order it, and he dismisses that because Rory O'Connor said, Well, we didn't do it, but if we did, we would have uh, taken proudly taken uh, uh responsibility for it. Three that Collins had ordered this during the uh, the War of Independence and during forgotten war, yeah. to 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 rescind the order, which seems unlikely. Or four that that he did order it, and the fact that Collins was up to all sorts uh, across the border, trying to uh, you know the northern the, the northern campaign and all this, trying to undermine Sir James Craig's government. Wilson, uh, perhaps wrongly uh, in some instances, was blamed for a lot of the uh, the anti Catholic violence that was taking place in the north at the time. So it, it's entirely it's entirely logical that uh, Collins would have done it. Interestingly, Collins, uh, this is from Ronan McGreevy's book. Collins sent two of his top men over to London to see if they could spring. Uh, Dunn and O'Sullivan, the two men who uh, who were about to be executed. And about a year later, uh, Dunn's parents had retired to Ireland and they were living in a rented house in Bray. And there's a knock on the door and it's Liam Tobin, Collins's top sidekick, who hands them the deeds of the house. Jeez. Now, if that's not some kind of recognition that they <laughs> owed a debt to the Dunn yeah, family, yeah. I don't know what it is. Anyway, yeah, it's, yeah. Cool. Well, it's, inter- it's interesting. It, it will always be there. Um, just want to come to the, the the free state side, David, but just briefly in terms of after the conflict breaks out, as you say, with the shelling of the four courts, um, De Valera, as I understand, he, 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 he signed up back as a, a private Nizal regiment and the anti-treaty side were under, I think, Liam Lynch. Um, but over the following months, right up to the end of the year and, and into 1923, did he as perhaps the political head of the anti-treaty forces, have much influence over the military men? No. Right. He was completely sidelined and he didn't like it one wee bit. Um, as you, you rightly say, uh, the, the morning, a couple of hours after the uh, four courts were shelled, he arrives into his office and he immediately starts saying, oh, well, we must try and find a way to find peace and we get the Lord Mayor involved and all the rest of it. And Cahill Brewer said, no, too late. These men have gone over to the uh, British. We're going to fight them. And he, he signed on as a private again in the uh, 3rd Battalion of the uh, of the Dublin Brigade. Now, he didn't remain a private very long. He became a staff officer, uh, but he was constantly urging Liam Lynch to allow him to form a Republican government. You'll have to imagine the air quotes there. Um, to kind of, um, to give a, a focus of loyalty, to give a, a, an aura of legitimacy to the anti-treaty side. And he's eventually allowed to do that in October. But he, he, he realises quite early on that they're not going to win this war. They can't win a war against a much better supplied free state side. And if there is no uh, hope of success, it would be immoral to continue. And he's constantly at Lynch arguing this. And Lynch clearly uh, doesn't have any time for the argument and doesn't have much time for de Valera. But eventually he said, OK, you can set up a government. So he sets up uh, this uh, Republican government, which is you know entirely fictitious. It's one thing running an underground government during the War of Independence when you have the people on your side. It's complete, complete make-believe uh, when the people are not on your side and they very much weren't on, on, on his side at this stage. So de Valera... He blows hot and cold about the prospects of success. He blows hot and cold about the tactics that are used, you know, ex- execution of, of TDs and all that sort of thing. Um, he's, he's forward one day, he's against it the other. He's, he, he really, he isn't in control 
of anything and he isn't really in control of himself, I think, to, to, to some extent. But he's constantly thinking about the politics of it. He's constantly thinking of what comes next. We are going to be beaten in this. Lynch was completely obdurate. He refused to even consider a ceasefire. But de Valera is thinking, what terms could we find uh, to reach a peace deal with the, with the Free State government? What is the, what is the off-ramp, of a phrase we've, we've heard in relation to Ukraine lately? Um, and he's also thinking about the future. There are going to be elections at some stage we are going to put our argument in front of the people. And we do not have enough support simply among those who oppose the treaty. And even as early as January 1923, he's writing to Paddy Rutledge about reorganising Sinn Féin and, and widening its appeal. And he says, our aim is not to make a close preserve for ourselves, but to win the majority of the people again. I understand the difficulties, but we must teach our people to be broad in this matter. So De Valera wants to reach out. He wants to keep the Republicans who have opposed the treaty, obviously, but he also wants the support of the neutrals. And there are a lot of neutrals who, who refuse to take part in the civil war. He also, at a slightly later date, wants to reach the people who supported the treaty on the basis of the stepping stones argument, that they thought it was going to lead somewhere and that were disillusioned in the early years of the free state. So this is his political strategy. And he's working on the political strategy even before the end of the Civil War, it's quite extraordinary that he's, his mind is, is casting itself forward uh, in, in a political way, in, in, in this way. And that, you know, leads to the resurrection of, of, of Sinn Féin after he's released from prison. And it leads to Fianna Fáil. The whole point of Fianna Fáil was to reach a broader uh, electorate, was to surpass Civil War politics. So we, we hear a lot about a century of Civil War politics. De Valera was trying to overcome that in 1926. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Rolling it back a small bit again to the conflict itself, David, and the other side, and that's the, the pro-treaty side. In August, in the space of seven or eight days, both Arthur Griffith dies, mm. natural cause, unfortunately died young, a heart attack, and um, Michael Collins is assassinated or shot in Bail-Nabla on the 22nd of August. The absence of those two figures from the pro-treaty side, and I suppose trying to separate the reaction to Collins's killing is one thing, but the mere absence of them, would they have given what emerged as, as the government through the rest of the civil war a different character to the government? I mean, or let me put it another way to you. What, what evolved into coming to Gale, it's kind of difficult to see Griffith or Collins being comfortable in, in that kind of home. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, ironically, certainly in economic policy, Fianna Fáil was a lot closer to Griffith than uh, Cumann and Rael ever was. Collins, I suppose, is, 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 <laughs> this is the big question. What would Collins have done? And we can never tell. And uh, there's a very good book about Collins by um, Anne Dolan and Will Murphy, which, which talks a lot about this. And we tend to project onto Collins our own political views, our own aspirations. I mean, I've seen Collins described as, as a proto-feminist, which he most certainly was not. <laughs> um, I've seen, you know, people talk about, oh, Collins would have been much better on the economy and, and he wouldn't have been had the penny-pinching approach that uh, Cumann and Rail had. Well, there's no real evidence of that in Collins' time as Minister for Finance. He was very much a stickler for following the rules and, and accounting for every penny. You know, Collins would have done this, Collins would, would have done that. We simply don't know. And I think that's partly the reason for Collins's image um, 
been on such a high now in comparison to De Valera. De Valera, uh, or, or indeed uh, W.T. Cosgrave, both of whom had long political careers, which involves compromise, which involves disappointment, which involves, you know, failure, failure to live up to early promise. Collins didn't have any of that. It's a pity he didn't have the opportunity to live on and, and to show what he could do. We can never tell what it, what he would have been like, but certainly I, I, I think you're right that the Cumberland and Wales that did emerge probably would have been very different uh, under Michael Collins. Might have been more successful, might have been less successful. You simply don't know. And W.T. Cosgrave, I mean, whatever way we look at it, uh, they led that first government after the Civil War. Um, They maintained and and strengthened democracy over the period right up to when uh, de Valera won with Fianna Fáil in 1932. And uh, does he get the credit he deserves? I think his reputation has increased uh, um, somewhat in recent years. I mean, any, anybody who looks at that 10 years of, of the first government of the state, there's plenty to criticise, obviously, as there is with any government. They certainly uh, could have done more in, in, in terms of, of, um, of helping the less uh, well-off in, in society, although they were very strapped for cash. Um, they were conservative in, in many ways. But there's a lot to, to credit as well. I mean, look at the Shannon scheme, the Ardna Crusher hydroelectric scheme, which De Valera opposed because he thought it was it was uh, too expensive. Um, Cosgrave's government pushed that through as a magnificent uh, achievement. And if you look at the way that they developed and strengthened and furthered Irish sovereignty, um, even De Valera was prepared to admit in private that they had done a magnificent job in terms of pushing the boundaries of uh, of the Commonwealth as it was becoming, of securing more independence for the various dominions, including the Irish Free State. So there's a lot on the credit side, a lot on the debit side as well. But I think you're right that the, the key thing they did was to maintain Ireland as a democratic state. Now, oftentimes people say the best thing Cosgrave ever did was to hand over power to de Valera in 1932. I think it's a bit of a stretch to say, to praise somebody for not carrying out a coup but uh, it is true that there were firm foundations for Irish democracy, thanks in part to Fianna Fáil entering the Dáil in, in 1927. And W.T. Cosgrave certainly deserves credit for that. Yeah, and finally coming back to Dev, uh, he emerged, a lot of people say he was very lucky he wasn't um, even captured, not to mind shot during the Civil War, because he was captured like others, like Erskine Childers, he mm. would have been shot most likely. But he did emerge, he, 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 he became the outstanding, the major figure of certainly early 20th century, most of the 20th century in this country. You've written extensively about him, David, and as, as, as you know, a lot of people, particularly from the other tradition, blame him, rightly or wrongly, to the greatest extent for being the, the, the reason behind the civil war or the, the man who was responsible for it. Did he ever share his innermost thoughts about that period or reflect on any possible culpability or express any regret about his role in, in what happened leading up to the Civil War? I think you can tell that he had, uh, I won't say guilty conscience, but an easy conscience uh, about it all by the lengths he went to to defend his position. If you were an historian who was uh, was unlucky enough to hove into his into earshot in, in his later years up in the Irish or, or wherever, he would go on at length um, to defend his position and to explain his position. And he tended to do that when he knew he was on a sticky wicket. Um, there was one historian went up to the Irish to interview him when he was president about um, the period of the Second World War and he kept going back 
to the early 1920s, to the Civil War, to the Treaty, to what happened. And he always defended himself. And I mean, he had a he had a reasonable um, he had a reasonable argument to make. He he wasn't. I think he wasn't certainly solely responsible for the Civil War. He does bear some blame. We we spoke about his his reckless rhetoric uh, earlier. Uh, he made mistakes. Uh, he made decisions which which were unfortunate. So did lots of other people. We've talked about the British. Um, you know, Collins has has a certain share of blame. Griffith. Uh, but and particularly um, the people on the military side, Rory O'Connor, uh, Liam Lynch, people like that. So there's plenty of blame to go around, and De Valera deserves his share of it. He wasn't solely responsible for the Civil War, uh, but he gave an aura of legitimacy to the anti-treaty side, which he wouldn't have had earlier, and perhaps persuaded some people to oppose the treaty who wouldn't have done otherwise. So I think the Civil War probably went on longer and was more extensive than it might have been otherwise if, if De Valera... Um, if De Valera hadn't uh, taken the side that he did. I mean, imagine De Valera working the treaty, working the constitution with a united uh, movement behind him. I think things would have, would have, uh, would have moved a lot quicker uh, than they did. So, uh, you know, as an old man looking back on his life, I, and you can read the, um, the Longford and O'Neill biography, which is uh, an autobiography in, in very thin disguise, and he was certainly unrepentant about what he what had happened but I think at the back of it there was an uneasy conscience yeah finally David I mean it's been described as not the most or one of the most conservative revolutions of, of the period or whatever but the other side of that coin is that the, the people like Cosgrave de Valera and, and and others around both of them um type of politicians they were they did ensure that um, Ireland, the free state as it was, remained a democracy at a time, and we forget this going right through the 30s even, when democracy was very shaky and, and it was not anywhere near as widespread as it is now. That, from the point of view of politics, was a, a fair achievement. It was, and, and you're right to, to, uh, to credit both of them with it, uh, and, and lots more beside. I mean, you look at the, all the new states that emerged from um, the Treaty of Versailles, the only one still standing as a democracy after the Second World War is Ireland, uh, and that is an achievement. And that, you know, partly that goes back to the deep roots of democracy that stretch back as far as Daniel O'Connell. Uh, and you can see it in, in terms of the Home Rule movement as well. People were involved, people were engaged, people took part. And that was the, the foundation on which uh, Sinn Féin built uh, in 1918 through to 1921. And, you know, despite the, the terrible lapse into civil war, politics was always uh, in, in the background. It, they were always going to come back to politics once the civil war was out, was out of the way. And that's why, as, as I say, de Valera was, uh, was working hard on it. And the civil war, you, I mean, you described the depravity that was involved and there were terrible things done on, on, on both sides. But if you compare it to other civil conflicts that happened around that time. Like, look at Finland. I mean, there were tens of thousands killed. Awful, uh, awful, awful war. Um, or the Spanish Civil War uh, some, some time later. You know, the Civil War was terrible. It was awful. It wasn't as bad as perhaps it might have been had it uh, spilled over into a conflict with, uh, with the North. But still, we, you know, a century on, we look back and we can see that people made a difference. Politicians made a difference in what they did, what they didn't do, what they said did have an effect. Dave McCullough, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. 
Uh, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening to this podcast, one of our series commissioned for the centenary of the Civil War. We'll see you soon. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.